We're doing really good. No, no, sorry, Thomas. You're, you're doing fine. I, frankly, and this is the thing. Every time we look back at the sound booth, like, what are you guys doing? Seriously, you go up there and try to do that and see, see how good it sounds. So, anyway... A couple things that I want to address real quickly before we get started is in your bulletins, you had a little handout that talked about Life Groups 2016. Uh, Life Groups are an important part of this church. Life Groups are our version of small groups, and there are 10 different Life Groups meeting throughout the, uh, the metro area, mostly the East Metro. But what we want you to do is we want you to find one that fits your time, fits your schedule, fits you know what you need. And uh, that's all kind of listed on the back, the days and kind of the type of life group that it is. And then uh, on the front is what you got to do to get involved. So we're trying to streamline everything. So I know, you know, we're still kind of this, this family church and we just want to go up and say, hey, I'm coming to your life group. But if you could help us out by going to one of the stations, station number two and kind of signing up or going online and signing up that way, that would be great. It would help us out a lot. And uh, we know you'll get a lot out of life group. So make sure you get that started because it's, it's uh, happening pretty quickly. One other thing really quickly I want to address is uh, my shirt that I'm wearing. I've gotten more comments about this shirt. They're like, what, were you wading in waist-deep water before you uh, came to church? I was baptizing people. No, uh, it's just the design of the shirt. I just wanted to say that because I, I just figured everybody during the whole service would be like, what's going on with that shirt there? Is the bottom wet? What's happening? Like, And you wouldn't listen to the sermon. So just bring, I'm, I'm, I'm putting that out there, all right? So now you know. Now you know. Um, the, uh, this weekend has been, has been really good. We have been out at Woodbury Days, which is the Woodbury area's version of kind of uh, the state fair, which we do at the, at the same time. I don't know why. Uh, but we have interacted with thousands of people. Judging by how many freezy pops that we have given out, uh, we're going to be on track to interact with about 12, 1,300 uh, kids. And that's pretty good. And hopefully some of their parents, too, have been handing out invitations. So if nothing else, we've raised the blood sugar level of the youth in Woodbury. Uh, but we're hoping that getting our name out there and awareness and interacting people and having a po- for people to have a positive experience with, uh, with members of the Woodbury Church of Christ is going to be a good thing. So if you do get a chance to go out to Woodbury Days and you want a freezy pop or you want some candy or something like that, we'd love to have you do that. Come out and say hi to the people that are manning the booths today. All right. Commercial break over. Ready to start? You ready? (sighs) You guys are always so underwhelming. Okay. All right. Let's jump right in the deep end, okay? Let's jump right in the deep end. No no preface, no nothing. We're just going to get started because I know a lot of people just like to get started. And I want to start off with this. Uh, Chris did a good job during the the, uh, communion setting us up a little bit, but I want you to understand this. When it comes to sin, this is the lie that we all tell ourselves. I can handle it. When it comes to sin... This is the lie that we all tell ourselves. I can handle it. And I want you to kind of uh, ruminate on that just a little bit as we go throughout this story. And I know it's a familiar story. And I know there's going to be a temptation to kind of tune out or think about other things or do other things. But I want you to stick with it because I think the payoff is going to be worth it. Because there's this lie that we tell ourselves is just, it's pervasive. And every time we get ourselves in a problem that we don't really want to get out of, this is the lie. Some version of this lie. I can handle it. I can manage it. I got this. But it's a, it's a lie. At the end of the day, it's a lie. If you've been coming to church here a while, you'll have heard this story before. And I, I just want to preface that in case you think I'm repeating myself. But it fit what I was talking about pretty well. When I was uh, probably 19 or 20 years old, I got a job at a garage door company. So we would go out or people would go out and they'd fix people's garage doors. You know, things broken springs broken, things like that. So I got this job and I was all excited. I went out and got a bunch of new tools. I was just so happy to have this job, you know, that 
just a job, first of all, but also kind of this, like, I get to wear a uniform, and I was 19 or 20. I thought I, would, I thought it would be a cool thing to do. So I went out and bought all the tools. I got everything ready, and I go to the warehouse, and they're like, okay, we're going to put you in charge of sweeping the warehouse. Okay, well, I'm the new guy, whatever. I put my tools down to the side, and I'm like, I, I'm, a, I'm an achiever. I want to prove to them that I can do a good job, no matter what you ask me to do. You're going to ask me to take out the trash. I can do a good job. Sweep the floors. I can do a good job. So I get out the broom, and I'm just doing this meticulous job. I want it to be so clean in there that you could, you could, uh, you could have surgery in that warehouse if, once I got done. So I'm sweeping along. Everything's going great. I'm the only person out there. Uh, but I want them to walk out there and be like, wow, Patrick, you're such an amazing sweeper. Why don't we make you vice president of the company? That's what I'm looking for, something along those lines. Sweeping, sweeping, sweeping. And uh, one of the work trucks is parked in the warehouse for some reason. It was a new work truck, so they didn't want anybody driving it yet. I guess they didn't want to break it in quite yet. And it was parked in the warehouse, and I thought, well, you know, if I really want to do an excellent job of sweeping this warehouse, i got to move this truck out. Nobody's in here. I'll just move it out. I'll sweep, and I'll bring it right back in. Nobody will know. It'll be totally fine. And I'm doing this in order to do a good job at my job. That's what my goal is. So the keys are in the truck, and I open the passenger side door or driver's side door. And just because I'm backing out, I'm not, I'm, I don't even close the door. Just backing out of the garage real quick. Going to sweep, and then I'm going to pull it back in. So I'm looking over my shoulder, backward, like this. Driver's side door is open. Now, if you've ever been in a warehouse, because they know how many idiots work in warehouses, they build these concrete posts next to the doorway so people don't hit the doors. Driver's side door is open. I'm looking this way. I'm backing out. I got this. I can handle this. And I hear this kind of crunch shriek of metal. And I look over. And the door is now not pointing this way open. It's pointing forward open on the new work truck. And I'm like, okay, now I have a new problem to deal with. But I got this. I can handle this. How hard can auto body repair be? It can't be that difficult. So I pull the truck back in, and I walk to the front. I'm looking over at the door, so hopefully my boss doesn't walk in. And I'm looking at this truck, and I'm like, okay, what do we got to do? So I lean into it, and I push it back so it's in place. But the metal is all bent all around the door and all around the the front part of the truck. And I'm like, oh, boy, uh, I got this. I can handle this. So I go find a hammer. Because I figured that's what you do when you're fixing a car, right? That's what auto body guys do. They get a hammer and they just bang on the car till everything looks smooth again. That's, that's going to work. So I start doing that and the paint starts coming off the car because I'm banging on it. I got this. I can handle this. There's spray paint in this warehouse somewhere. I can fix this. I got the hammer. I'm about to bang a couple more times and my boss walks out with me, a hammer, and this messed up brand new vehicle. And I'm like, oh, man, this morning started off so great. I was set to be VP of the company, and now I'm going to get fired. And they didn't fire me, and I don't know why. They probably should have. But I thought, I thought I could handle it. And I think we do that in a lot of areas of our lives. We feel like we can handle this. We can fix this. We can, we can take care of this, and, and we can't. I, we cannot handle this. In all the stories that we've been looking at so far, if you haven't been with us, we're in the fourth part of a series called Credits, and it's about David, who's this amazing character, and most people have heard of him, if for no other reason than they heard of the the story of David and Goliath. It's just kind of this, this epic moment in David's life, and we've been exploring the background characters in David's life that helped him not only live out that moment, but helped him live out other moments where he was this amazing, faithful, loyal man of God. And in all the stories we've looked at, David has been the good guy. 
But we're about to look at a story where David is the villain. And he's not just bad. He's unbelievably bad in this story. And someone comes along and helps him right the ship. And we're going to talk about that a little bit. So this is kind of an intense story as we read through it. I know most of you are familiar with it. You know it. But honestly, as I was studying this, I felt a little uncomfortable. Because I'm looking at the deepest, darkest, dirtiest part of a person's life. And it's just laid bare for us to read and, and hopefully learn from. But it, does, it's a, it should be a little uncomfortable to understand what we're dealing with. So we're going to look at this in three parts. Number one, we're going to look at the crime. We're going to look at the cover-up. And we're going to look at the confrontation. The crime, the cover-up, and the confrontation. So if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. Now you know the story. David's hanging out on the roof. It's the patio of the palace, basically. He's walking around, sees Bathsheba, and he's like, there's a woman. That woman's pretty. I want that woman. I'm the king. I should be able to have what I want. So he gets a messenger, and in verse 3 of chapter 11, he sent someone to find out about her. Who is she? And this messenger comes back. The man said, she is Bathsheba. She has a name. She's a person. The daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, you get the idea as you're reading this, and it's a little speculative, but you get the idea that the servant had a sense of what David was thinking in the back of his mind. And it almost feels like he's saying, no, 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 this isn't just a woman. This isn't just a pretty object. This person has a name. I don't know that he's doing this, but he's reporting. This person has a name. In fact, she is the daughter of someone you know. This is someone David knew. She is the wife of someone who works for you. He's a guy in your army, not an insignificant person. She is somebody. And when you look at her like that, again, the servant's not saying this, and there's no implication that it is in the text, but when you look at her like that, you get the idea that David's treating her as an object, and this messenger's like, no, she's a real person with real human relationships, and and these things that you're thinking are going to have a real impact. And like I said, we don't know what's going on in the servant's mind, but evidently David doesn't have anybody around him to say, no, 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 don't go, don't even go there, don't go that direction, don't even think about that, let's do something else, let's think about something else. He doesn't have anybody like that. There's no one to say, look, hey, taking a hammer to the company vehicle is a bad idea. So David uses his power as king to sleep with her, then sends her home. And he must have thought, you know what? I got this. I handled it. I'm the king. I do what I want. I got this. Except then in verse 5, Bathsheba sends word. Hey, uh, guess what, David? I took the uh, pregnancy test, and guess we're having a boy. And David must have panicked for a little. He must have thought, oh, man, uh, wait, I'm the king. I got this. I can manage this. I can handle this. I got this. He must have thought that because of what he begins to do next. And I just want to say, just kind of as a, uh, just, just a little takeaway briefly before we get further on in this, I think that it's important to understand that one of the clearest signs that we are in over our heads with sin is thinking, I got this. I can handle this. I can manage it. As soon as that thought goes through your mind, you should say, whoa, red flags, danger zone. This is a bad idea. Oh, I can sin. I can handle this. We cannot. When it comes to sin, we cannot handle it. So that's the crime. Let's talk about the cover up. Again, 2 Samuel chapter 11. So this is what David does. He's handling this. 2 Samuel chapter 11. Let me tell you this story real quick before I read that. Recently, I uh, I read an article, uh, and sometimes when I read stuff that I think is relevant, I'll put it in a little file, and I'll pull it out later in in the right sermon. And I read this article where the the title was, Groom 
poorly fakes own death to avoid wedding. And I thought, ah, must read. I must read what happened here. So this is what? This is what the article said. It said that he had gotten cold feet. He decided he couldn't get married. But you can imagine breaking up his heart, having that conversation with somebody that you've made plans. This, this, uh, the girl had spent money. She would bought the dress. I mean, she would sent out the save the dates. And this is a big deal. So to break all that off, that's a big deal. So the groom doesn't want to take the sole responsibility and say, look, I just can't, you know, I, I can't deal with it. So instead, what he thinks is a genius idea is to call his girlfriend up lower his voice just a little bit, and say, hey, I'm your fiancé's dad. Bad news, your fiancé's dead. <laughs> now, I don't know the fiancé, why she didn't understand, like, you, that you sound like my fiancé. I don't know. I don't know what was going on. But she believed it. She bought it immediately. Of course, she's broken, torn up, you know, sad. And so she calls her fiancé's mom to commiserate and console each other and deal with this sorrow. So she calls mom on the phone, mother and, future mother-in-law on the phone, and mother-in-law is like, no, he's fine. I just talked to him 10 minutes ago. He's totally fine. Everything's fine. So then fiance's confused. What's going on? And also mother-in-law is a little confused because mother-in-law had not been told that her son was getting married. Yikes. So mother-in-law is like, fiancé, what? What are you talking about? My son is not dead, nor is he engaged. Now this kid, this kid. So the reporters, of course, like, they're like, okay, we got uh, to talk to this guy. And I am so surprised that he gave an interview, but I want to share you his quote. This is what he said in response to being completely found out like this, having articles written about him. He says, I am a terrible, awful person. <laughs> yes, yes, you are. That's... That's very clear. And then he says this. I know I shouldn't have told her I was dead. You think? Is that just now dawning on you? Like, is this, is this understanding? Like, you're just figuring this out. You shouldn't have told your fiancé that was a secret fiancé that you hadn't told anybody else that you were dead. And he goes, but I didn't know what else to do. Really? There's no other options. You were thinking, hmm, how do I get out of this relationship? Ding, I know, there's only one thing that can be done here. We must tell her I have been killed. And it was like this horrific accident, too, that he went. It was awful. But it's true. It's true. And this is true in the political realm. You can see this every time you read about a politician. The cover-up is always worse than the crime. The cover-up is always worse than the crime. And you've experienced this, right? When you were a kid and you did something you knew you weren't supposed to do and you were going to get found out, so you tried to figure out how a way to get out of being found out and you got in more trouble because it got into lies and it got into... It got worse. The cover-up seems like it's always worse than the crime. And this is absolutely true in a terrible way for David as well. So David tries to cover up the paternity by giving Uriah a break from war. He's off at war and he's like, bring Uriah back. He's a good soldier. He deserves a break. And his plan is is that he goes home to his wife, nature takes its course, and then nine months later, uh, Bathsheba has a baby and nobody's the wiser. That's the plan. But Uriah is exhibiting characteristics that David should have, loyalty to God and loyalty to David, and Uriah won't go home. He's, he tells David, look, I cannot go home because we haven't settled this yet. The Ark of the Covenant, he talks about the Ark of the Covenant, symbol of, of, of Israel's relationship with God. The Ark of the Covenant doesn't have a home. My, my comrades are out fighting. I can't go home and enjoy myself. I'm going to sleep at the, at the door of the king's palace. I'm not going to go home. So here's this guy being extra loyal, and David's like, ugh. He tries multiple times to figure out how to get Uriah to go home involved, even getting him drunk, to try to send him home, and Uriah just won't do it. He won't do it. 
What else, I wonder, what is he thinking about this whole situation? Like, was he thinking, oh, hey, you know, Uriah's dead, but, but Bathsheba, she's going to have a better life because now she's going to be married to the king and this child is going to be raised in the palace? I mean, ultimately, it's really for the good, right? I mean, sure, Uriah had to die and that's sad, but he might have died anyway and then all these other good things are going to come about because of this. I'll have another son. There'll be another prince in the palace and he's thinking, I can handle this. I'm the king. I got this. I can manage this situation. And maybe he's even thinking, this is the kind of stuff that we do. Maybe he's thinking, okay, we'll get all this dirty, dark stuff past us, and we'll, we'll, and then I'll repent. Then I'll get my life right with God. Once we get past this chapter, I mean, it's ugly, but I'll have what I want, and then I'll be able to express repentance, and I'll write some songs, and I'll feel sad, but then we'll move on. Maybe that's what he's thinking. Maybe he's even, even anticipating the repentance he's going to have to express to God. The fatal danger of thinking and we've all done this. The fatal danger of thinking that we can deal with sin in isolation is self-deception. Thinking, when you think, I got this, I can handle this, it's okay, and here's why. The problem with that is we are notoriously pathological about lying to ourselves. We all do it. In fact, the Bible says our hearts are chronic liars to ourselves. We don't like to feel this guilt. We don't like to feel that pain and that burden. And so our hearts tell us lies to make it feel like it's gone away. But it hasn't gone away. I was at uh, Target a a while back, and Target has these self-checkout lines. So if you don't want to wait in line to interact with an actual human being, you can go do the checkout work for Target, pay the same price, and I guess... Be introverted. I don't know what the, the, the plus is. But I, I use them occasionally if the lines look like they're long. So I'm in line. I'm waiting for this guy in front of me. And this guy's having problems with the checkout. And that's the other thing, too. Have you ever noticed? It never, nothing ever works right. Like you pick up the item too soon and the computer's like, did you take an item from the... <laughs> Just leave me alone. Just I want to give you money and leave, you know. And then the little light flashes or whatever. And there's just always a problem. You always got to call the person over anyway, right? You always, and then you're behind that person who's buying like three weeks worth of groceries on the self-checkout line. And you're just like, what? Oh, come on. Anyway, so this guy was in front of me and he's having problems. He can't figure it out. Um, and so he's looking around. And usually there's a, a, a person there anyway just watching, making sure people just don't walk away with stuff. And for some reason, there wasn't a person attending the self-checkout line. And so he's looking around. He's obviously frustrated. And he's getting more frustrated as he goes, more annoyed, more irritated with the whole situation. And finally, he just looks around, and then he just takes his bag and he leaves. Just walks out with the stuff. So shoplifted, right? Now, this guy did not walk into Target thinking, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to steal stuff today. Over the course of that interaction with that self-checkout machine... He came to the conclusion that he should just take this stuff and leave, that it was okay. And I guarantee you, I can't read his mind, I tried, I guarantee you that he justified it. I guarantee you that he thought, well, this is frustrating. If they didn't want me to just take it, there should be somebody here to help me. I've already spent enough time with my inconvenience anyway. I basically paid for these things. I'm just out of here, not going to pay for these items. I know, I guarantee you he justified it in his mind somehow. And so he just walked off and left. And so I chased him down. And I tackled him, and I held him down until the security could come. No, didn't do that. Wearing my Woodbury Church of Christ t-shirt. Citizens arrest, my friend. Come to church with us on Sunday because you need Jesus. No, I, I justified 
myself too. I didn't go tell a clerk. I was like, well, that's Target's problem. It's not mine. I mean, and it's not, I don't know that it is mine. But I, I went through the same process too. Like, hey, that guy just stole something. <laughs> eh, oh well, not my business, right? That's what I did. Every time we go through a situation where we think, here's what I should do, here's the right thing, and maybe it's not self-checkout lines, maybe it's something that actually matters, we go through this pro- when we don't do the right thing, we go through this process of telling ourselves some lie. And because we're telling ourselves the lie, and there's nobody around us to say, dude, you are lying to yourself. That is ridiculous. Don't even think like that. We can get away with it, because there's nobody hearing the lie but ourselves, and it sounds good to us. So David takes care of the situation. He's the king. He can handle it. Sure, Uriah's dead, but, you know, sword devours one as well as the other. Who knows? He might have died anyway in this battle. We don't know. And now I have a wife and a son, so everything's good. I handled it. I'm the king. I got this. I managed the situation. Everything works out in the end, right? Actually, David's life went downhill at this point. Um, if you read the rest of the book of 2 Samuel, it's ugly. And it's stuff that, that was prophesied would happen because of this. And it is ugly. David's life took a sharp left turn, and he could be right with God, but he was going to suffer consequences of these choices for the rest of his life. His children, his relationship with his children was ruined, essentially, because of this. And the prophet said this would happen. So part three, part three. The confrontation. So you've got to go over one chapter here to talk about this a little bit. 2 Samuel chapter 12. But it says this, verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David. The Lord sent Nathan to David. That's, that's such a wonderful verse. Because even if we're lying to ourselves, even if we're in a situation where there's nobody around to hold us accountable, even if we're running away from God, God still pursues us. Isn't that a wonderful thing to know? Like, you can't really get away (laughs) away with too much. I mean, you really got to want it to get away from God. Even when we're running away, God still pursues us. David thinks, okay, hey, I handled this, but people know. Joab knows, the servant knows, the palace staff knows, because he marries Bathsheba and five months later has a baby. The palace staff is like, oh, that's weird. I wonder what happened there. I don't know. God knows. I think deep down inside, David knows. He knows. There's no, you can't feel settled and at peace in a situation like this. So Nathan comes into this situation. He's a guy called by God to deal with this. I don't know what kind of relationship they had with before, but Nathan comes in. And Nathan, he had to be nervous, right? David has always pro- already proven himself willing to commit murder to cover up this crime. So Nathan walks in and be like, hey, buddy, guess what? I know what you did. What's David going to do? Hey, uh, this guy is bad. Let's kill him. I mean, Nathan had to be nervous, right? I mean, you think about the confrontations that you get into where you're calling out a friend for doing something they shouldn't do. Think about those situations. Imagine that, where that friend might kill you, right? That's some high stakes. So Nathan walks in, and he could have walked in, and he could have yelled, repent ye sinner, and walked out. He could have said, you're a terrible excuse for a human being, because at this point in David's life, he was. This is ugly. But he doesn't. He tells a story. And the story starts in in, uh, 2 Samuel Chapter 12, verse 1. There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle. Now, we read that story and we're like, oh, we know where this is going. David doesn't get it. He doesn't know yet. Hasn't figured it out yet. Self-deception. Verse 3. But the poor man had nothing except one little lamb, one little ewe lamb he had bought 
He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. He shared his food, drank from his cup. It even slept in his arms. It was almost like it was a daughter. Like, like it was a daughter to him. And you can, I mean, <laughs> like Nathan's laying it on a little thick here. It's almost like a little daughter. You can just imagine if Nathan and, or had had PowerPoint, he would have been like, David, this is the sheep right here. Look at this sheep. Look, the sheep is smiling. Like animals can't smile, but look at that sheep. It's so cute and so loved that it learned how to smile, right? Cute little baby lamb. And David, evidently he's a sucker for a little baby lamb. So he's like, oh, it's so sweet. I love it. It's so wonderful. Wait a second. You were talking about this rich guy. What, was, what does the rich guy have to do with this story? And then, now a traveler came to the rich man, verse 4. But the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler to come to him. Instead, he took the poor little lamb that belonged to the poor man, and he prepared it for the one who would come to him. David is like, you're kidding. Now, David is a hardened soldier. He's like a guy who's seen it all, done it all. I mean, he's got a lot of sin in his heart. But you kill a little baby lamb? Nuh-uh. you got to draw the line somewhere. I may kill Uriah, but no little baby lambs. Now, David is thinking maybe that he's arbitrating an actual case. And so David says, you know what? Capital punishment. You kill the lamb? It says in verse 5, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. This is a capital offense. He must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over. Wait a second. Does he have to die or pay for the lamb? How do you do both? Are we pay for the lamb first and then killed? How is this working, David? Because he did such a thing and had no pity. Ever notice that uh, sin, and often the sin that we struggle with, seems so much more clear and ugly in other people's lives. You ever notice that? David is walking right into Nathan's little trap, and the steel jaws are about to slam shut. And in verse 7, he says this, and I don't know if you can tell that Nathan's a little worked up. Like, he's mad because this is a terrible thing that's happened. Forget the lamb. Uriah, this is a terrible thing. And Nathan said to David, I don't know if he's yelling at David, but he's like, you are that man. Spit coming out of his mouth, just anger, fire coming from his eyes. Or if he's like, hey, David, that's you. I don't, I don't know how he said it. But I guarantee you, David sat down in his chair, his throne or whatever, and his shoulders slumped. And he couldn't meet Nathan's eyes. He was so overcome in this moment because then he's like, oh, wait, you're not talking about a lamb, are you? You're talking about a human being. You're talking about what I did. You're talking about my sin. Second uh, Samuel twelve thirteen. Later on, Nathan says, "Like your life is going to be trouble from this point on. This is what's going to happen." He said, "Like this, this child is going to die because of this sin. Your children are essentially going to disown you and fight you because of this sin." And David said to Nathan, after Nathan goes on this long talk, he goes, "I have sinned against the Lord." It's interesting. He doesn't say Uriah. He doesn't say Bathsheba. He doesn't talk about the baby. He talks about God because that's the heart of the, the relationship that's been broken is between he and God. And you can't fix it. You can't manage that. doesn't matter if you're the king or not. You can't handle it. That relationship is one that you can't do anything about. I brought this up before, um, but I, I want to tell you this real quickly as I, as I wrap up, make a, a quick point here. Um, when uh, Liam was a couple years old, probably two, he's playing on a playground, and, you know, kids slip and fall. And, and it, despite the fact that they've made playgrounds completely safe, you know, he managed to hit, like, the one part of exposed metal and split his lip. 
quite a bit, you know, like literally split his lip, not just bleeding, but like there's two parts to his lip now. And it's really <laughs> disgusting. I know. I just want you to have the picture. So we rush from the hospital. Crane's a tough person, but she doesn't deal well with this kind of stuff. So I, you know, I'm the one that's got to like, oh, Liam, you know, whatever. And we drive in the hospital. Of course, he's crying and because he's crying. The lip is, you know, it's gross. It's terrible. <laughs> so we get into the ER and they're like, oh, yeah, we're going to have to stitch that thing up. Okay, great. That sounds fantastic. So they start putting the anesthesia on it and he's just writhing. He doesn't want anything to do with the doctors. There's this pain. He doesn't want any of this. And those of you that heard this story before, you know what happens. So the doctors are like, hey, uh, so you're going to have to put the anesthesia on the wound. Like, what? Why did I come here if I have to do the work? Like, do I get a discount? Like, how does it, do I, am I going to pay less because I'm doing the work? He's like, you know, you're going to, you know, he's just, he just thrashing around too much, doesn't want anything to do with us. So they gave us this big old long Q-tip in this local anesthetic. And he's like, okay, dad, you got to put it right there in the wound. And, and I was like, Crane? And Crane's like, nope, not going to do that. <laughs> okay, you know, that's what dad's got to do. So I get in there, and I put that Q-tip right in that split, right in that lip. And, of course, Liam hates it. Crane's actually holding his arms down, holding his head back so he won't, uh, you know, thrash around because of the pain. And we're trying to, con- you know, console him, like, buddy, I'm so sorry. It'll be okay. This will be, you know, this will be good. And I'm thinking, stupid doctor. She's not supposed to hate us. He's supposed to hate you. Like, why are you? <laughs> why are we doing this? But from his little perspective, somebody's, somebody's injuring him, right? He doesn't understand that this has to happen to get better. This has to happen to get better. To get out of our sin, that confrontation that is painful and ugly and hurts has to happen for us to get out of our self-delusion and our self-deceit. We dislike confrontation so much, don't we? We do. Uh, We don't want to tell somebody they got something stuck in their teeth. (laughs) (laughs) Not my job. Got a big old thing of spinach right there on the front two teeth. Look like a hillbilly that does never seen a dentist. Not my thing. Not going to deal with it. Or if they have a little something hanging out their nose, like, you could save them so much trouble, right? Hey, I'm going to my new job interview. Hey, uh, never mind. Good luck. I'll be praying for you. (laughs) Honest, I've done this. We have an internal debate over whether or not to tell somebody their zipper is down. Hmm, I think I should, because that's pretty embarrassing. No, that'd be awkward, because then why were you looking at their zipper? Well, I mean, you just, no, just if, no, we better just leave this one alone, let them deal with it on their own. They'll eventually feel the breeze, and they'll understand what's going on. It'll be okay. We have an internal debate over minor things like that. Like, well, there's no way we're going to deal with serious stuff, serious sins. Not for me. In fact, when I say confrontation or confession, that's the, that's the result of this. Some of you are like, mm, I'm out. <laughs> no thanks. No, no confrontation or confession for me. In fact, let's keep a safe distance. I'm not going to get involved in a life group where we might develop some close relationships where somebody might see some problems that I'm dealing with and might be able to talk to me about the problems that I'm dealing with so I don't get in too much trouble. Not going to get involved in a life group. Not going to get deeper into any relationships. In fact, if things get too uncomfortable here at church, you know what? I'm just going to pack up, move somewhere else where I can be a little bit more more anonymous. Come in late, leave early. I don't want any of that confrontation, confession. None of that. That sounds awful. Dallas Willard um, writes... He says this, it's so good. In confession, we lay down the burden of hiding and pretending, which normally takes up a dreadful amount of human energy. Confession makes deep fellowship possible. And the lack of it may explain so much superficiality so commonly found in the church. I know. Wasn't Chris right when he said this is going to be uncomfortable? He was right. Because we are so much more happy with superficiality. Let me, uh, let me wrap up by saying this. 
we are so afraid of confession and confrontation that we'd often rather just let someone live with their problem, whether it be something in their teeth or whether it be something awful in their life. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who's an author, wrote a great book called The Cost of Discipleship. He wrote this. He says, nothing, nothing can be more cruel than the leniency which abandons others to their sin. Hey, good luck with that. I'll pray, I'll pray for you. Hope, hope that works out. I'm not going to say anything. I right, confront them. Just hope it works out. We're, we're, maybe we'll put a Band-Aid on that gaping wound, but we're not going to get in there with the Q-tip. Maybe we'll just be like, hey, buddy, uh, let's, let's, let's cover that festering wound up with a little Band-Aid because, uh, you know, I don't want to see that. I don't want to deal with that. And ultimately, it's just cowardice, right? It's just cowardice. Some of you are thinking, like, you are kidding yourself. If I'm going to open up my life to someone that is going to confront or confess, I don't want to hear anybody confessing their sins. Ugh. Sounds awful. And there are dangers to this, right? There are people who want to confront us without the trust established. There are people who do this without love. There are people who are eager to inflict pain through confrontation. I get that. There are dangers. But that's not really the problem we're dealing with. The problem we're dealing with is the lack of close relationships where somebody can call us out and say, Hey, King, you don't handle, you can't handle this. You don't got this. Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 3 says this. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, if someone is caught in a sin... You who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. Tell them about a lamb. Start there. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Verse 2, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Verse 3, if anyone thinks they're something when they are not, they're self-deceived. Here's the dilemma. Nobody wants to be the hard truth teller, which is perfect, because nobody wants to be told hard truths. And then we can all just leave here, not get involved in one another's lives, and come back next Sunday. It'll be great. We'll just have nice, polite, distant, shallow relationships. Perfect. Works for me. Some of you are like, that sounds great. I like it. Maybe we're not quite there yet. Let me just ask you this question, and then I'll wrap up. Do we love each other enough to ask difficult, invasive, and life-saving questions? Do you have anybody in your life like that? Are you that for, for anybody else? If you don't, I, I, I'm afraid that maybe you're like David and you're dealing with something that you think you can handle, but you can't. You need Nathan. You need friends. You need deep fellowship. We're going to wrap up with a word of prayer, and I'm not going to ask anybody to come up and confess their sins in front of everyone. But maybe what we should be doing is confessing our lack of relationship in which we can confess sin. So as we wrap up this morning, Dale, I'm going to ask you to come up. But I encourage you to look out, seek out life groups, relationships, friendships that, uh, with people that will ask difficult questions. And be a person that you can establish trust with so that you can be that Nathan for someone else. Dale?